Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Actung, actung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and no Al today, but um, um, don't worry about that, um, uh, because we have an amazing guest. We've got Professor Christine Halliwell, who is not a historian at all, um, but an anthropologist from originally from New Zealand, now based at the National University in Australia. Um, but Christine is uh, conveniently for us over here in the UK at the moment and actually up in Durham, where um, a place of which I am incredibly fond, it has to be said, because I was at university there back in the day. Um, Christine, you are incredibly welcome to We Have Ways. Uh, thank you for coming on. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, James, and enjoying being here in beautiful Durham, as you say. And thank you for your very kind welcome to the to the podcast. Well, Durham's quite a place, isn't it? I mean, it's a place that's absolutely teeming with history, uh, and um, there's that absolutely phenomenal cathedral. Um, sort of, I know it's a place of God, but it also looks like a bastion too, doesn't it? It's so solid, and uh, and of course you've got the castle as well, and the river weir kind of winding round. Um, and you're doing work in the uh, in the university library. Are you? That's correct, which actually, amazingly enough, is in, is in the sort of that green area. Uh, I don't know what it's called, the castle or the, or the cathedral keep, you know, that green sort oh, of area yes, right yes. beside the... So, so I'm yeah, College Green. Yes, College Green, thank you. So I'm literally about 50 metres from cathedral and from castle. It's quite astonishing. And as you say, it is a truly, truly beautiful place to be. Well, in my first year at Durham, I was, um, I was in St Chad's College and my rooms were in a building called Lightfoot, which was just outside the end of the, um, the rose window, which I suppose is uh, probably the west end of the, of the cathedral. And every morning I used to be woken up by the stonemasons. Yes. <laughs> and you kind of thought, has anything changed in 900 years? <laughs> you know, that sound must have been kind of sort of tinning out every every morning for the, you know, since since sort of I don't know whether it was 982 or 992 or whatever it was it was first first founded. But uh, but yeah, it's an amazing place. Um, but but um, the reason we've got you on is because you have done um, a huge, amazing amount of work on the Dayak people of Borneo, uh, and 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 immersed yourself with them and spent time, a lot of time on Borneo itself. And while you were there, presumably you unearthed this incredible story of this, this Australian-led operation in the closing stages of the Second World War. 
Yes, indeed. So um, I am an anthropologist. Um, that's someone who kind of studies the social and cultural life, usually of non-Western people, although not necessarily so. And I've been working in Borneo, as you say, for f- almost 40 years. I, I hate to think now how long it is that I've been going there. I'm working with Dayak people, the indigenous people who live in the jungles of Borneo. And yeah, around eight years or so ago, I realised that 40 years ago, I'd collected a huge number of stories uh, from Dayak people about World War II, but I'd never done anything with them. And that led me to this incredible story that the book is about, which is about this. um, You say it's an Australian lead. It's actually really a joint Australian-British operation um, uh, uh, to send special forces into Borneo behind Japanese lines during World War II. It is a truly astonishing story. Nothing to do with me. Um, It's just in itself. It just is an amazing story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I yeah. get that. I get that. Um, um, but, but, and it's Operation Simut. Is that how you pronounce it? Simut? Simut. 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 Yeah. Simut. Operation which is, Simut. Which is the Malay word for ant, James. Um, so the it idea was so. okay. that they That's were like, nice. like ants scuttling along the ground, you know, just taken for yeah. granted. You didn't see them, you didn't hear them. Yeah. Oh, I rather like that because a lot of Operation names just have, they're all a bit sort of random and. Um, you know, there's a sort of book of operation names and people sort of rifle through them and choose it for a particular, you know, operation that's going on. But this one actually has a point, so I quite like that one. Um, but but before we get on to, to Samut, let's, let's just talk... I mean, tell me a little bit about Borneo, because I don't really know much about it at all, apart from it's got deep jungle and it's got orangutans and just incredible, <laughs> incredible wildlife. But I don't know anything about, about Dayak. So so tell me about how you got involved in Borneo and, and you know, what... what Tell me a little bit more about Borneo and what it's like. So, well, let me tell your listeners first, because, I mean, I know it's in a completely different part of the world. It's it's very um, it's, it's very close to Singapore, just to, I was going to say, just to the right of Singapore, just, just, to, the right. east of, just to the east of Singapore, not very far northwest of Australia. Um, it's the third largest island in the world, so it's actually a very, very big island. And as you say, always been famous for this dense, dense tropical jungle and for its orangutan and various other animals. Now, sadly, uh, almost gone. The island's now almost completely logged out, which is just heartbreaking for someone like me. Um, but it's uh, it's indigenous people, it's indigenous pagan people, um, uh, what we call Dayak people. They live in the interior, mostly in the interior of the island, uh, in the jungles, where they build these extraordinary longhouses. And when we say longhouses, James, we use that word long advisedly because these dwellings were half a mile, 800 metres long, um, traditionally. Um, and they lived in the jungles, built these long houses, grew rice, um, uh, hunted game, fished in the rivers. And that was how they still were in 1945 when these, these men from Operation wow. Samut went in there in an attempt, I should say, to try to recruit them into a guerrilla army to fight the Japanese. And, and just to add, to add to the story, um, they were traditionally headhunters. So right. these, these guys going in, one of the very few things that they knew about the Dayaks was that they were headhunters. And the various European regimes had attempted to ban headhunting, but uh, there were fears that many Dayaks could in fact still be headhunters. So it was not it was not a sort of inconsiderable risk that they were taking jumping into No, no, the no, sure. <laughs> you can imagine, can't you, sort of images of cauldrons and boiling heads and That's all the rest right. of it. Uh, uh, but, 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 these, but, but the Dayaks, I mean, tell me a little bit more about them. So they, they have these incredibly long houses, which are, they seem to be on stilts, is that right? That's correct. Built 
always along the sides of rivers. Um, yeah, up on makes stilts, sense. Up on stilts mainly for defensive purposes, a little bit like Durham Cathedral, although not as, you know, <laughs> you build it at the top of a hill. With Dayaks, yep. they, they build them up on stilts so their enemies coming to take their heads, um, you know, you could pull up your ladders and start throwing the equivalent of boiling oil down on them. Um, right. You know, rocks, rocks and things like that. Um, and, and, and so and would she, the whole tribe live in, live in one longhouse? Is that the idea? Uh, Yes. Um, so some groups, um, there's quite there are quite large numbers of people, so they live in lots of longhouses. But some groups are very small, so it's one tribe to one longhouse, as you say. Um, uh, yes. And typically, what are you talking about? I mean, you talk about sort of hundred people in a in a in a longhouse, or uh, no? You're or is there no hard and fast rule? No hard and fast rule at all. And the ones that are very, very long, you know, half a mile or so, you're getting you're getting quite a few hundred people in there. So yeah. each 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 um, family, each household in a longhouse has its own what we would call apartment, equivalent to a sort of contemporary apartment block. Right. But instead of going up, they go along. So you each have your own sort of what we might call private apartment. And then along the front, there are these huge open verandas, which are communal yeah. space. And when a visitor walks up into the longhouse, that's the first thing that confronts you. This enormous cathedral-like almost, because they have big arched roofs, um, space that you know, confronts you. And a lot of the operatives from Operation Somewhat wrote about their first experience of climbing up into a longhouse and what amazing spaces these were. And, and what, what drew you to these people in the first place? Uh, so I decided, you know, you know, God knows how long ago that I was really interested in anthropology, and I'd read um, a, 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 what we call an ethnography, a, a description of, of of a particular people written by an anthropologist, an Australian anthropologist, and it had been about Dayaks. It was a book called Nine Dayak Nights, and I read that in my first year anthropology, and I just thought, if I go and do fieldwork, I want to work with Dayaks. So it was as, as simple and as easy as that. So when I then decided to go on to do PhD. In Australia, um, I actually, uh, I, I actually stated that it was it was Borneo Dayaks that I wanted to do research with. And back wow. in those days, you could just go go anywhere and do anything, and that was just all perfectly acceptable. Wow, isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah nowadays, I think there would be more questions about it, but right. that's that's what I did. <laughs> but how do you? I mean, you know, you're okay. So you're you're this white New Zealand-born Australian academic, and you suddenly you know you suddenly arrive in Borneo and you want to study the Dayak people. I mean, how do you how do you go about that? I mean, uh, is there a kind of sort of what's what's your in? Well, it's kind of amazing isn't it? Because again, it, it may not work nowadays, but you literally just go up to a longhouse and say, hey, hi, I'm here. I'm, I'm interested in studying your you know, social and cultural life. Uh, have you got somewhere I can stay? And Dayaks are renowned for their hospitality. They're incredibly hospitable people. So it's almost as if um, you cannot you cannot refuse a guest who turns up at your longhouse. That's actually mm. true of many tribal peoples around the world. There's this ethic of hospitality. If someone turns up, you cannot turn them away. So I just. But what happens up. if you're an enemy? I mean, uh, oh well, if you were an enemy, you would certainly be turned away, and you wouldn't be coming asking for hos- you wouldn't be coming asking for for hospitality. Okay. Basically, okay. so yeah. there's no threat. They, they quickly establish there's no threat from you whatsoever. That's right. And most longhouses, there are rules that once you climb up the longhouse ladder into the longhouse, you're not allowed to kill. You can't kill an enemy in the longhouse. So again, it's these rules of hospitality. Right. So once once you've got up there, you're perfectly okay. You're perfectly safe. Okay. <clears throat> and, so, and what about the language and stuff? Okay, so um, 
When I first went there back 40 years ago, many Dayaks spoke the lingua franca, which is Malay, which is spoken right through that, that region. Um, in 1945, of course, most Dayaks or many Dayaks didn't speak Malay, which of course was a problem for these operatives going in because they didn't have a shared language. Not that the operatives had very good Malay. They'd done a little bit of a Malay course, but they didn't speak much Malay. But when I went in there, um, most probably most Dayak people spoke a little bit of Malay. So you're communicating in Malay. But as an anthropologist, one of the things that I am expected to do is to very quickly learn the local language, which, of course, has never been written down. So you're actually putting a lot of time in in those first few months to learning the local language. I mean, it is, I mean Borneo is huge, isn't it? I mean, yes. I'm just looking at it now on Google Earth. I mean, it yeah. is enormous sort of, you know, sort of look, it looks a bit like Sicily, but at a different angle. Yeah. Sort of yeah. slightly, yeah. slightly sort yeah. of triangular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a bit more jungle. In a jagged written. way. Yeah. A bit more jungle covered <laughs> than Sicily. Slightly more jungle. <laughs> yes. A little less sort of bleached open spaces of hills and mountains. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, you know, when you, when you went there and your, your first sort of Dayak Longhouse you went to, I mean, was that kind of far in the interior or was that near the coast or, or, or what? No, they're in the interior. So, um, pretty much all longhouses are actually in the interior area. So I probably should have said earlier that, um, Borneo has always um, had its coastal Malay people. Um, and so most of the, of the Malays and the Chinese live around the coast and then the interior areas are where the Dayaks live in the jungle itself. Um, so they're in the interior. You have to get into the interior to get to the longhouses. Right, and this and this is exactly what you imagine. This is all dense, dense jungle, hills, rivers, mountains, all this kind of stuff. Tropical yep. rainforests, yeah, dripping, yep. dripping with moisture yep. and yep. weird animal and bird calls constantly. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely exquisitely beautiful. I cannot tell you how beautiful the jungles were back when I was first there in the nineteen eighties. Um, you know, they've now, as I say, been mostly logged out, but they were true. Have they? So really, though, so even now. The, the interior is just gone. The, the yeah, it's almost rainbow. all gone. There's almost no jungle left. So animals <gasps> like the orangutan you mentioned earlier are now all critically endangered because uh, the habitat no. is mostly gone. Who's doing the logging? Well, it's mostly big Malaysian timber, big Malaysian timber companies that are taking out the logging. Um, increasingly, Dayak groups have been fighting them, um, and in fact, the royalties from my book, much of the royalties go to one of these, um, one of these small NGOs that's that's actually fighting logging and hydro schemes. We haven't mentioned the hydro schemes um, down one of the rivers uh, where the Samut men fought. So. Local Dayak groups are, are now fighting them, but it's it's almost too late. They're now trying to create um, sort of areas uh, of jungle habitat, you know, that are protected areas uh, because most of the jungle is now gone. That it is heartbreaking, and and but so it's partly logging, isn't it? Partly palm olive groves, is yes, that right? Yes, so they they tend to go together. Oh. It's logging, and then you get the palm oil groves, which have just taken over the island, basically. And this, and presumably, this isn't going to be stopped, is it? No, it's. I think it's too late now for Borneo. But so they are trying to create these protected areas where you're still getting, um, you know, remnants of the original jungle, and where you've still got some of the protected species like orangutans, gibbons, sun leopards, and so on that are surviving. Wow, it's a tragedy, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Really, it's, it's it, really, awful. it really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, so, so, but you got there. You, we went to a longhouse. You got in with a with a particular tribe. Presumably, there's lots of different Dayak tribes. There are, yeah, and lots and lots of different languages, which was a real problem doing my research for this book because I was having to traverse areas where the Simwat men had gone, and I was trying to work in local languages. So yes, I got in with a tribe, and I spent about twenty months there, um, living Goodness. in this 
living in this longhouse in the jungle and just recording the kind of social and cultural life of its people. And as I God, say, that must have been just fascinating, wasn't oh, it? It's, I mean, it's it's kind of the most. It's, I regard it as an incredible privilege that I was able to have yeah. that experience. It's it's probably the great experience of my life. I mean, oh. how many people get to go and live in a in a longhouse in the middle of the Borneo jungle for twenty months yeah. or so? Yeah. Wow, yeah. just incredible. Yeah. And what? I mean, so I mean, just before we get on to onto the Second World War and, and Simut, I mean, what, what are you eating, and 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 what are the conditions <laughs> like, and and the privations, and you know, did you you know going native was it easy? No, it's definitely you- it's definitely not easy. It's it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful, but it's it's tough. I mean, the diet in the area where I worked was not that great. Um, Dayaks right through Borneo live on rice. It's rice for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, rice, rice, rice. I mean, everything in Dayak life revolves around the production of rice. Um, and a lot of the operatives on the operation, in fact, came away from Borneo saying they would never, ever again eat rice for the rest <laughs> of their lives. They just had enough of rice. Right. Um, and then you're, you're basically... But fruit as well, presumably. Yep, fruit, but again, but it's all... It's all very seasonal, don't forget. So there are yes. times of the year when you've got no fruit at all. Yeah, you're fishing, you're hunting, wild boar, mm. uh, venison, turtles, um, snake. Um, you're foraging for leaves and so on. Um, people and you also- got stuck in, did all that? I, I did all of that, yep. I, I, I'm a dab hand at growing rice, James. I, I know all about it. <laughs> and a dab hand um, at spearing snakes. <laughs> well, no, I never quite got to the spearing snakes. Um, but, yeah, as an anthropologist, I did all of that and did yep. that for, for 20 months until I felt that I had some knowledge of what these people's lives were like. And, and broadly speaking, pretty good. I mean, are they a community-spirited, obviously? I mean, I mean, what, what, I mean, if you were to sort of sum up the day at people in a – I don't know, in a couple of sentences. I mean, how would you do it? Or is that just impossible? Um, in a couple of sentences, I would say they are well, incredibly... Or a paragraph or two. Yeah. I, <laughs> I would say they're incredibly smart. Um, yep. They're incredibly generous, incredibly hospitable. Um, as all the operatives wrote, and as many uh, people have written about them over the centuries, they have the best senses of humour of any people you will probably encounter anywhere in the world. How um, lovely. Yeah, they are. They are truly uh, wonderful people, actually, Dayak people, and and that's pretty much what every every in spite of the headhunting, that's pretty yep. much what everyone has written about them. How wonderful! And what about the sort of the family unit? Um, so uh, they live in in sort of uh, households, which is basically what anthropologists call a stem family. So it's parents um, who will stay. Who so one child will stay on in the longhouse apartment of the parents, and the other children will then move out to either build new apartments or to move to the apartment of their spouse. Um, And then, again, so every generation you've got one child staying on in the longhouse apartment. So it's basically uh, a nuclear family group in a sense, although although it's got grandparents and great-grandparents. It's it's sort of... If you see what I mean, if that was a rather incoherent explanation. But um, no, 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 it's yeah, right, yeah, coherent. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. See you in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. So let's go back to Simut. So, so it's March 1945. The war is drawing to a close, but it's certainly not over yet. And certainly not in the Far East and, and not in the in the Pacific. So how does this get hatched? And, and, and what's the... And, and sort of in a way, kind of why bother? Why, why you know, the Japanese are going to lose. Why don't you just leave them in Borneo until <laughs> the war's over? Um, so as you probably know... Um, uh, in late, uh, sort of in mid to late 1944, the Allies started to. So Borneo was occupied by the Japanese. We should tell your listeners that in yep. in late in late 1941, early 1942. In 1944, as the Allies were beginning to win the war in the Pacific, they started to hatch plans to retake Borneo from the Japanese, and they eventually planned uh, Allied landings at Labuan on the north coast of Borneo um, for June 1945. They were planned for June 1945. Right. So the I and, and I should just say that for the Brits, uh, for the British, um, this was especially important because Borneo had been a pre-war British colonial territory. They yep. wanted to to get in there quickly and get it back from the Japanese. It was wealthy in oil, it was wealthy in timber, all kinds of other resources. So um, uh, late 1944 or mid, actually mid 1944, they started to hatch plans to actually put special operations groups into the north of Borneo in advance of the landings. And the idea that was that these groups would be put into the into the interior, in the jungles, and they, they were sort of tasked with two things. They wanted them to... Um, to get, inf- to get to gain intelligence, to seek intelligence that could be used to help the Allied landings, but they also yep. want... Uh, which have been very successful in other parts, you know, whether it be the yes. Karens or whether it be the Chins, yes. whether it be um, the Nagas up in um, in northeast India. Yeah, You know, yep. the, the, the British have been particularly good um, at getting the indigenous peoples to kind of work on their behalf, just but you know, and I suppose it was comparatively easy because the Japanese were so awful to them. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. By so then, it's a sort of you know, lesser of two yeah. evils in a way. Exactly. By then, I think most Dayak people in Borneo had turned against the Japanese, although they they weren't to know that when they jumped in. I mean, that was the big yeah, fear sure. when these these guys jumped in. And I should just say that um, the main planners of this operation were actually SOE men. So it was it was conducted under the auspices auspices of uh, an organisation called Special Operations Australia, SOA, um, but that was in a sense almost an offshoot of this British uh, organisation, SOE, Special Operations Executive, which I'm sure you know about. Which is so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where were they based? Were they based in, in um, Ceylon or were they based in Australia? They were in Australia. So there was, so uh, SOA, Special Operations Australia, was actually headed up um, by SOE 
a guys who had been who had been seconded to SOA from SOE. So the organisation right. was run in a sense by SOE by SOE guys. And yeah, the yeah, oper- sure. And, and this operation Samut was planned. All of its planners are actually British SOE men, and its senior officers were mostly British SOE men as well. Sure, uh, but where were it, they doing that from? Were they do, they were doing that from from Northern from, Australia? From Australia, from Australia, and then they moved up to Moritai, and then they moved up you know further up into the Philippines. Um, yeah. So yeah, they were based in Australia. Wow. So, so who's, who's going in and when, when does this, I mean, you know, how, how do you plan something like that? Um, so they basically um, selected uh, two groups, two groups of eight, the initial right. two groups so of eight. So 16 people. 16 people, mixture of uh, mostly, a uh, mixture of Australians, British, uh, one or two New Zealanders scattered in there, a Malay or Chinese or two to help provide sort of local, you know, local, yep. local knowledge. Um, and they trained them for two or three months beforehand on things like parachuting, because they were going to parachute in hand-to-hand combat, jungle craft, although I have to yeah, say yeah, when, yeah. They, when they got there, they knew very little about jungle craft because yep, even, well. the Queen, even, the, even the Queensland rainforest is nothing like Borneo jungle. They learnt a little smattering of Malay, the local lingua franca, um, and they dropped them in, the first group going in in late March. Um, the first group was led by Tom Harrison, um, who right. some of your listeners may have heard of, um, very well-known British um, anthropologist and scholar generally. Um, yep. And th- that first group of eight just dropped in to this very remote jungled plateau Um quite a long way in the interior of Borneo. And, of course, they'd chosen to drop them into the interior because they wanted to try and make sure they were behind Japanese lines. Um, right. So they dropped into the Kalabit Plateau, which no one knew anything about. They knew, All they knew was that there was a Dayak group called the Kalabit there, but they knew nothing more So where is that? It. That's right in the centre, is it? Uh, that's sort of... Um, is your map showing you Sarawak? Uh, yes. So it's right in the far... Um, uh, far sort of uh, western, far eastern, sorry, spot of Sarawak. Sorry, I should have a map here that I could show The eastern you. spot of Sarawak. Okay, yeah, got in it. the kind of eastern corner there, that most inland, right on sort of borders over wow. into Indonesia. Wow, yeah, that is pretty much so. The eastern part yeah. of, of Sarawak is, is yeah. kind of Very right mountainous. in the centre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, I mean, you feel quite nervous about, it. and it looks like there's a big valley just in that southeast. Exactly, corner. and that's so that's a where big, they drop them. Big long straight east to west exactly. valley. Exactly, that's where they drop them. A, a little area called the Plain of Ba, which was a kind of long valley. Long singlet, I'm looking yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Batang so, Bale. Yeah, yeah. Bale, 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 Batang Bale. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. God, you'd be quite nervous about just jumping in, wouldn't you? Getting well, tangled in some incredibly long high tree or something. Absolutely, and not to not to mention, James, you've then got the possibility of headhunting Dayaks waiting on the ground below. Not to mention the possibility of Japanese okay, so on the ground below. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how is so, I mean, how serious is the whole headhunting thing at this stage? Um, well, headhunting had been. Um, uh, various European, both the Dutch and, and the Brooks and the British, had all tried to ban headhunting. But even as late as the 1930s, headhunting was still taking place in, in Borneo. Um, and don't forget, these were areas that had not been effectively colonised. So they were out of you know colonial control. So they just really didn't know whether there were going to be headhunters there. And actually, one of the points I make in the book at some length is that headhunting did occur during the operation. They were actually encouraging local Dayaks to headhunt against Japanese. Um, so and did they? And they did, they did. Um, and that's a very interesting story in its own right. 
Wow. So, so where are most of the Japanese at this point? So most They're of the around Japanese, the coast, presumably. Most, exactly. Most of them are scattered around the coast and up some of the main rivers. So the Barham River, which you might be able to see there, and especially the mighty Rajang River, which is the huge river that flows right through Sarawak there. You've got Japanese yeah. scattered up both of those rivers. And those were the two rivers around down which the Samut uh, guerrilla armies came. They formed these guerrilla armies in the interior, and then they moved down these rivers towards the coast, pushing the Japanese yes. in front of them. Gosh, that does look like it. Yeah, the, the yeah. Rajang River yeah. looks huge. Huge river, yeah. And so there wow. were Japanese. There were Japanese all the way up that river as far as Belaga, and the and the Samut guys crossed the uh, crossed the mountain range just beside Belaga there and actually came down that river. Wow! How amazing! How amazing! So they get there and they they do land okay. Yep. The first the first group and how far behind is the second? Second group is, is supposed to come in two weeks later. It's actually slightly later because they hadn't had proper radio contact from the first group. They thought the first. <laughs> oh, there's group, a surprise. <laughs> they thought the first group had probably been captured by the Japanese, and so there were debates about whether to go in. And they decided right. that they just they couldn't just abandon them, so they jumped in about eighteen days later. Um, they wow, were very. That's I should say they were very brave men. All of these men who jumped in. Yes, it really was I mean you know because because it, as you say, it's not just the Japanese. It's the jungle. It's the mountains. Yeah. It's a kind of you know the risk of of actually just not landing safely is yeah. pretty high yeah, yeah. somewhere like here. The risk um, of losing and then, and then <laughs> all of that. Yeah, that's that's incredible, and and of course you know the, I mean. Operations during the Second World War, uh, they're just littered with people having radio failures. It's kind of just sort of, you know, because it's still in its infancy. People kind of just think, yes. well, why can't they've got that right? It's just yes. easier said than done, you know. It's, yes, um, yes, absolutely. And that actually really bedeviled this operation, especially one of the parties, Simut too, had huge, huge radio problems, uh, was just right. unable for months to contact base. So, yes, they were bedeviled. Really? So, so do the two parties never hooked up at all? Um, no, so uh, I mean it's a, it's a long and complicated story. It was initially supposed to be one individual party. They decided fairly quickly once they got in there, within a month or two, that really they needed to separate into three separate parties. Um, and so they they divided into three different parties, which went in quite different directions and operated in different parts of Sarawak. So you had Samut Three, which operated down the Rajang River there, which you right. can see. You had yeah. Samut Two, which operated down the Baram River. And some one remained up in that Calabit Plateau area, and worked right. from there and worked from there across to the across to the east coast of Borneo. So, but ultimately, the, these operations, this this these people who parachuted in, these teams, they they were able to hook up with the Dayaks and persuade them. Yes, yes, and that that's an extraordinary story in its own right. Well, do, well, do, well do, do tell. I mean, the, you the know, negoti- to touch on it. Well, I mean, they they had planned this operation actually very well in that each party had someone who could speak some Malay, and right. uh, the overall leader of the operation, a gentleman called Toby Carter, um, who's actually a New Zealander. Um, uh, um, he had actually spent quite a lot of time in Borneo as a surveyor before the war. So he spoke not only fluent Malay, but a number of the local Dayak languages. Um, and so he was actually able to negotiate with local Dayak chiefs, some of whom he already knew, um, in their own languages. Um, and it was a matter of then persuading them that it was in their interest to come on board this operation. Because, you know, Dayaks are no less pragmatic than any of the rest of us. I mean, the right. main, as you, as you rightly pointed 
that area, one of the main things that persuaded them to come on board with the Allies was simply the way the Japanese had been had begun to treat local people, which was very badly. They were taking their food, especially, so locals were running short on food. Um, you know, things were not going well, let's say. Um, but they were also very pragmatic people. They made a decision about which side they thought was going to win. They decided right. that, that that they could see that the the Japanese were starving by this time in Borneo. They were running out of food as well. Japanese forces were deeply demoralised and Toby Carter, who some of them knew, came and saying, look, there's a whole, you know, European army behind me. We're going to be here soon. Um, you need to to kind of join us for your own for your own benefit. Um, and there is a, a great sort of um, series which I set out in the book where they negotiate over three days and three nights at a huge party. Dayax love throwing parties and all of these things are always done at parties, lubricated by huge amounts of rice wine, I should say. You actually yep. just drink copious amounts of rice wine. Then they go back to the own to the to the fort. They're actually staying in a little wooden fort and wait for a couple of days uh, because this major Kenya chief who they're talking to has said, I'll give you my decision in two days' time. And they're waiting there two days later. Oh, and my God. A, I mean, okay, that must be exactly, pretty tense. Exactly. Really, really, really you know, full of anxiety, I'm sure. Um, two days later, there's a shout from outside. They go outside and there's this huge Kenya war canoe coming down the river, um, this big chief's war canoe. And at, at, at the stern of the canoe, it's flying the Union Jack. And so That's amazing. It's a, it's a truly remarkable story, and that sort of signals for everybody to see uh, what the what the decision that they, what decision they've made. Wow! How incredible! How incredible! And so and so, then how do these oper- You know, what forms do these operations take then once they get underway? Because presumably, I mean, they've only presumably they've only got limited numbers of weapons themselves, haven't they? You know, Carter and Co. And that was the huge problem to start with, that because they had no radio contact, they were having problems getting supplies. So they ran out of food. They had no weapons. They were promising local Dayak people that they would give them weapons to fight the Japanese. These weapons then didn't arrive. There was wow. you know, just problems that went on and on for weeks yeah, and weeks yeah, yeah. and weeks. Um, but once the weapons arrived, um, they started weapons training. So there were huge no- recruits. Just As soon as locals realized they could get a gun, there were huge numbers of recruits that poured in. And they were they were training um, hundreds and hundreds of, of Dayak men um, to use to use uh, you know to use this very sophisticated weaponry as it seemed very sophisticated back in 1945. I mean wow. some Dayak some Dayaks had used shotguns, but never the kinds of weapons that were coming in with Simut. And then they actually um, basically they were engaging in jungle guerrilla warfare. So it wasn't conventional face to face warfare. You don't engage in that kind of warfare in a jungle. But they were engaging in ambushes. They were you know um, you know striking run um, all of these kinds of things they were so night operations as well presumably presumably Um, at night Yes, but mostly during the day. Um, okay. You know, ambushes, things like this, lying in wait. Um, so you've got, by this time, by June, you've got the conventional Allied forces coming in from the coast, the landings at Labuan, and you've yep. got some Mut in the interior who are moving down from the coast and stopping the Jap- sorry, moving down from the interior and stopping the Japanese from fleeing inland into the interior of the island. 
You um, absolutely wouldn't want to be Japanese at this point, would you? You would not. They were absolutely and completely demoralised. They were terrified of the Dayex because they knew and that... And why they, wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be? And they knew... And what they were doing as well, James, actually, was this very, I think, quite sophisticated sort of policy of demoralisation where they were actually encouraging uh, Dayex to headhunt. They were actually paying them, um, it turned out, when I looked through the files, paying them for every Japanese head that they took. And what they were doing was they were... Ta- every time uh, Japanese were killed on, say, an ambush or a raid or whatever, they would take the heads and leave these headless bodies on the paths for their comrades to find. Um, and and Japanese, so Japanese, how, But how are they killing people? I mean, how you know, so, so, say, say if there's a, there's a day out raid, yeah. um, they, they strike a load of Japanese and they kill them. I mean, what are they killing them with? Mostly with blowpipes. Um, so you've got these really darts. darts. Yes, so the great and poison set. darts. Yes, poison darts. So you're setting up ambushes along the track. Um, you know, you're doing things like you're you're knocking off the the, the last man in in the, in the line, and then you they fall just immediately, soundlessly. You then move up to the so next. So what's guy the poison the they're using? Um, uh, what was the poison? Now that I'm not sure about. It's it's a it's a okay, local... but it's a, but it's, a, it's a, from some sort of you know incredibly yes. poisonous frog or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, trees, not frogs, but it's okay, mostly right, from okay. trees. And I've got. Very I never forget being in Singapore actually, and, and going to and seeing um going to some there was somewhere I went in there and was some incredibly poisonous tree frog that was sort of you know as green as Kermit. Yes. Um, and <laughs> And was literally the most poisonous thing in the planet. <laughs> what it had in it, or something like that. I mean, it was almost as bad as a particular type of, of viper. Uh, and you know, sort of, you only had to sort of blink at it, and it would kind of, you know, it would kill you instantly. But this poison is so strong, it just kills you. It, you know, shuts down the nervous yeah, system. You're dead immediately, Boom. immediately, and you're gone. Um, so the Japanese are patrolling through the jungle, and suddenly they look around. There's one less. Exactly. Or they don't don't even notice that there's suddenly there's five less, you know. So that was one Oh, wow. I mean, goodness, that would just be terrifying. It was. And then, Can and you then, imagine? And then you're also killing, say, an entire party, sometimes using rifles. You know, they've got the white guys there as well with their rifles. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But then you take all their heads, you leave them on those headless and bodies And how do you chop the heads path. off? Just a great big... Machetes, uh, big big parang, um, big sort of big big swords. Uh, we call them sort of bush swords, right. huge huge swords that every day. Oh, like the ones that the Japanese, the, the, the Australians had. They had those big thick kind of machetes, didn't they? Yes, these are big bladed, sort of curved bladed things, which every Dayak always carries with them everywhere they go. These huge really? sort of parang. Oh, that, that's partly for kind of just chopping through the bushes and. Yes, for... exactly. It's, you use it for absolutely everything. So right. I've got a couple of wonderful photos of of Dayak, um guys fighting with Simot who've got their Lee Enfield rifles slung over their backs, but in their hands they're holding their huge parang, their their big their big knives. Wow. Um, uh, and, and they are. They oh, yes, were, I'm looking at a picture in your book now, actually. Yeah. Oh, a of, Kenya of the, man from Barham River. Yeah. yeah. Big, turn, turn to the second to last page, um, James, and you'll, of, of the photographs, second to last page of the photos, and you'll see the one I'm talking about. Oh, my goodness the, me. Yes, yes, yes. So, yes, yes. so he's got his Lee Enfield a, rifle. A Samut to Iban Gorilla. So this is, this is an amazing picture. <laughs> so I should just describe him. He, he's got what looks like sort of, you know, British Army khaki shorts on. Um, he's got this huge huge machete i mean it's it's you know two and a half foot long i'd say something like that he's got a lee enfield on his shoulder he's got this wonderful hair that's sort of pulled back from the top of the head into a kind of bun at the back but kind of brushed forward into a sort of pudding bowl um tattoos on his legs and arms and shoulders 
And huge great hoops in his ear. I mean, he, I mean, sheepers, you wouldn't want to come up against him, that's for sure. <laughs> really, you wouldn't. Wow. What an amazing story. So, so gosh, I mean, so, so, and then you just leave the bodies behind without a head. Yes, exactly. And Japanese are similar to Western, are similar to you and I. Um, the idea of a body being headless when it's buried is horrifying to us. It's yeah, not the yeah. case for all peoples of the world. Um, but for us, the idea of bodily integrity after death is very important, and it is for Japanese as well. So Japanese soldiers in Borneo became absolutely terrified about going into the jungle because they feared they were going to have their heads taken by Dayaks. Um, this, this kind of leaving these headless bodies really, I think, led to this incredible uh, sort of process of demoralization um, you know, and depression even. Um, yeah. Well, frankly, he can blame them. I mean, I'm, I'm, you wouldn't get me going anywhere near them, I've got to say. I mean, <sighs> blimey. I mean, there's some scary things that, you know, obviously terrifying things that have emerged from the Second World War. Many, many, many horrific things. But I, I've got to say, being a Japanese soldier in Sarawak at the end of, end of the Second World War must be right up there with the absolute worst experiences I'd have thought. Yeah. You know, because yeah. add that to the conditions. I mean, everyone always sort of assumes because the Japanese do so well in the first part of the war that they're somehow kind of sort of, they're sort of jungle peoples themselves. And of course they're not. I mean, you know, the jungle is as an alien to a Japanese person as it is yeah. to a kind of a British, well, you know, British soldier really. Yeah, absolutely. And the vast majority of Australians yeah. or indeed yeah. Americans. I mean, you know, it's all, it's, this is all, all kind of new turf. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. And there's nothing, you know, when, when when geography is against you and you've got indigenous people against you, you know, that's a really, really tough yeah. combination to kind yeah. of combat. Yeah. Yeah. And you um, add to that, and you add to that, James, the fact that the Allies had put a naval blockade around Borneo. So, yeah, for, so for, for the last they couldn't get any food, uh, which yeah. meant that they were basically taking food from locals, so all the locals had turned against them. But they were starving. I, I found some extraordinary yeah, what do you do? figure. Yeah. I found some extraordinary figure in some of the files which said that by the time uh, the Japanese surrendered in Borneo, I think something like 50% of them were unable to walk. They were so weak from oh, starvation and illness that they were unable to walk. So you're absolutely right. The conditions alone were just shocking for them. Yeah, no, it's absolutely horrific. I mean, really, 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 truly horrific. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of the things about, about the, 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 the war against Japan is you know, into 1944 the Japanese have never had a greater amount of territory, but they've never been less well equipped to deal with it because their shipping has just been decimated predominantly by by um, american submarines but 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 by others as well and it's just an absolute horror story i mean they're, they're completely strangulated i mean the whole point of this sort of expansion into southeast asia is, is kind of all based around maritime power but if you take that maritime power away the whole thing hopefully just doesn't work at all and of course that's what happens to them and all these people that have been sent to these islands whether they be a small atoll in the middle of the pacific or whether it be something ginormous like um um like borneo they're completely dependent on 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 shipping and yeah. if that's cut off you know what do you yeah. do you're abandoned and a lot of these japanese soldiers that were sent to kind of whether it be to luzon or in the philippines whether it be to you know borneo or saipan or Peleliu or you know the Palauans, wherever it might be, they know that when they go there, that basically this is a death sentence. You know, yeah, their job yeah, is just to hold yeah. out for as long as they possibly can. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. you know that's just it's it's absolutely horrific. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, it, it truly is. So so how does it sort of evolve? I mean, what 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 happens? I mean, you know, obviously Japan's out of the war in the middle of August, nineteen forty five. So is that, is that what sees the end of it, or no, or does no, it come and, before and, that? As, well, as you probably know, um, even though the Japanese High Command surrendered in, in, in August, in fact, lots of Japanese 
throughout the Pacific kept on fighting for a range right. of reasons. They they didn't believe they believed it was an Allied an Allied sort of plan to trick them by telling them right. that the High Command had surrendered. Um, some of them, even if they believed it, decided to fight on anyway. So the Samuk guys were fighting on until September, October. Um, wow. They were fighting their own sort of individual private wars um, in these more right. interior parts of Borneo against local Japanese garrisons and so on. So in, in September, October, it's just there's no, no Japanese left. Is that what ends it? Yeah, in, in the end, they are all managed, They all Japanese... Uh, actually do surrender. They managed to persuade them all to surrender. But that's not until September, October. Um, okay, so what sort of numbers are we talking about here? Uh, in in numbers of Japanese in Borneo? So surrendering at the end? Oh, surrendering. Now, I'm not actually sure. I mean, uh, the particular, the numbers that they were dealing with in particular towns is sort of like three, four hundred. So the, the, the group that came down the Rajang River to Cebu, which you'll see towards the bottom of the Cebu, of the Rajang River there, um, I think from memory, by the time the Japanese and Cebu surrendered, there were around 500 or so of them that had kind of right. come down the river from different parts. That was very late by then. This was sort of like September, October. That they were finally surrendering, similarly over down the Barang River. So we're talking wherever Samut was, because they were dealing with these inland areas, uh, we're talking you know, numbers in the hundreds, whereas you've right, got right, th- right. thousands surrendering on the coast to, to yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, main sure. Allied conventional army coming in. Wow. Uh, what, what an amazing story. And I mean, and how did... So, so it was when you were doing your 20 months that you first heard about this. I mean, did the did, did, did day out people tell you about it? No, no. So I actually did my 20 months down much further, down further south in Borneo, ah. in what's called Kalimantan, now, now Indonesian Borneo. Um, right. Uh, I heard about, it was actually when I started to dig through um, interviews that I'd done with Dayak people back then, and they were telling me about the Japanese occupation, and I realised I'd not done very much that was very interesting with it. Right. Um, but it was then that I, it was just about eight years or so ago that I was digging through some of these very old interviews that I'd done you know, 40 years ago, that I thought, I've never done anything with my World War II material, and I really should do something with it. And I mentioned it to a friend of mine who lives in Sarawak, and she said, well, there's actually an old Australian soldier who was in a special operation in Sarawak during World War II who's still alive, and he comes back to Barrio, that remote spot on the Calabit Plateau where they first dropped in every year, even though he's now in his 90s. He comes back to commemorate the first landing of this party there in 1945. And is this Jack? This is Jack. She gave me Jack's phone number and said, why don't you give him a call? And Jack was then 94 years old, so I phoned wow. him and, and said... and still living in Borneo? And, no, no, still in... He was in Australia, but he went, oh, back, right. to Bor- went back to Borneo Got every you. year. Okay, yeah, I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, you know, can I come and visit you in Adelaide? I was in Canberra. And he said, of course. So down I went with a videographer from the Australian War Memorial, and I did my first interview with Jack, and I suddenly realised... This is a truly astonishing story. I'd never heard the story of Simuk before. No. Um, I thought, this is a truly astonishing story, and someone really needs to do something with this story. And yeah, the rest, as right. they say, is history. And so, um, and so you, you, you met Jack, and you had your stories from the Day Acts. But, I mean, how, did you, how much more sort of piecing together did you have to do? And, and, and where are you researching all this? Oh, it was a huge amount of work. So, um, well, I can see. I mean, your 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 <laughs> book is unbelievable. The kind of you know the notes and the work that's gone into it. It's inc- it's incredible piece of work. Oh, thank you, James. That's very and, and all the different. I mean, you know, the places you've been to. The goodness me. I mean, it's just incredible. Formal interviews conducted by the author. I mean, loads so, of them. 
So basically the problem was, and it's probably similar for people working on SOE operations, is that most of the files are actually destroyed at the end of the war. Yeah. Um, uh, this, this whole kind of secrecy thing. So there were very few files available on Operation Simult or indeed on Special Operations Australia more broadly. Um, so I, you know, I dug through all the Australian archives. I came to the UK, dug through the archives at Kew, the IWM and so on. Yes. But the most important thing I did was I actually trekked for about nine months through Sarawak um, interviewing oh local indigenous Dayak people and many of them remembered the operation and were able to give me you know, stories of the operation and that that material was absolutely crucial. It helped me fill in all kinds of gaps. Oh, Christine, what an amazing, amazing thing to have done, to have, to have been tracking through the interior of Sarawak, Borneo, yeah, yeah, talking yeah. to these people who could remember it. I mean, how extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the list you've got of people you spoke to is, is, is astonishing. Yeah. I also interviewed the three remaining Samut veterans. There were still three alive when I started this project. They've now all since died, sadly. Of course, um, yeah. But there were three, you know, in their 90s who were delighted to tell me about the operation and they were, they all gave me fantastic information as well. Wow, what an amazing thing. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking to us about it. It's been just, I mean, utterly, utterly brilliant. I mean, what an amazing, incredible story. And, and you know, if anyone ever doubts that the Second World War is a world war, I mean, you know, there we are. That's the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? But the fact that you're kind of, you know, this battle is going on in these... I mean, I've been to the Solomon Islands and that, you know, that felt pretty remote, I've got to say. But I think kind of Sarawak is, a, a you know, deep in the interiors. That's a different kettle of fish altogether. But amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. What an amazing place to have, have spent so much time there. I'd, I'd yes. love to go to Borneo. Um, oh, well, you you still can, James. And if you if you were to go now, there's still some remnants of you know the the original forest remaining. Um, I'd go sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you? I mean, but you know, so I wanted to go back and revisit the site of the the the, the first Simut landing. I mean, how do I get there? Um, you can fly into Barrio now. It's a, there's a little plane that goes up there two days a week. Um, right. And in fact, in fact, they've now got a little sort of um, memorial thing there um, to the first landings by somewhat up at Barrio where they first came in. So wow. you could you could do it. Um, and, How and that amazing! <laughs> and that area <laughs> is that area has still not been too badly logged. So um, it's uh, it's still worth definitely worth visiting. Wow. Well, thank you so much. That was just absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much um, for having me on, James. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you, uh, thank you everyone for listening and um, see you next time. Cheerio. <laughs>